0: So tonight I'd like to say a little bit more about some of the qualities that we both bring to our meditation and develop as we practice here. The Buddha called these qualities beautiful or wholesome qualities of mind and heart. And they're called the five spiritual faculties or the five spiritual powers. And they are powers, because they empower us in our practice, on this path. They're called faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And you've already heard some about each of these. They're both naturally present in our experience and in our practice and lives, and we're able to cultivate or develop them nourish them it's through developing them that we actually bring the loving kindness to life the meta becomes something real rather than a beautiful ideal so the first of these qualities faith the pali word for faith is sadha which literally means to place one's heart upon but it's also translated as trust, clarity, confidence, or devotion. I like the image of placing one's heart on. Think about what it means to feel that safe, to actually place our heart on something. It's as though we can give ourselves completely. When we're feeling wholehearted, there's no holding back. We offer ourselves completely to the task at hand. Or when we're not sure about something, we might say our heart's not in it. We hang back. We're hesitant. The difference is clear. So we develop this wholeheartedness not out of a blind faith, where we give ourselves to something without any discrimination. When the Buddha offered these teachings, he said, come and see for yourself. That's what we're doing here. Initially, our faith might be in the possibility of developing loving kindness, the possibility that it actually is an inherent capacity. And we might be inspired by that possibility. So sometimes the way we know faith is as the inspiration to practice. This inspiration might be based on hearing the teachings, perhaps on by knowing someone who embodies the qualities that inspire us, qualities of love, compassion, wisdom, or selflessness. So we begin our practice And as we practice the Brahma-viharas, we cultivate this wholeheartedness. Gradually, we begin to open to ourselves with more and more of an unconditional acceptance. And we expand that acceptance over time to include others in wider and wider circles. Sometimes faith can be inspired by really recognizing the suffering in this world, or in our own experience. I actually had this happen to me on a retreat one year, on a long retreat, where I experienced some relatively minor frustration, which grew, into <laughs> anger, And then that grew into a full-blown rage. And the conditions were such that I could actually be with that whole process and feel it fully. It was really humbling. Prior to that, I had always thought, oh, I'm just not the angry type. (laughs) I'm not an angry person. It was kind of amazing what happened when I really felt it with a lot of mindfulness, the pain of that state, the suffering of that state of rage, was so clear that what followed was this deep sense of faith and connection with the practice. It just totally inspired me to do whatever was necessary to free myself from that kind of suffering. So, in the beginning, our faith might be based on what we've heard. It makes sense to us. We have an intellectual understanding of the teachings. And we're inspired to give it a try for ourselves. To see for ourselves what's possible. Then, when we investigate our own experience, and begin to see the truth of the teachings for ourselves, perhaps experiencing a moment of deep acceptance and loving-kindness, Our faith deepens. A really deep faith is likened in the teachings to a magical (laughs) gem that when placed in muddy water clarifies it, makes it clear. An opening of faith based in our own clear seeing, our own insight, our own experience of unconditional love has this kind of power the muddy water of confusion or doubt clears. Often, I think faith is expressed simply by the willingness to go on in our practice. In those times when it's tough going, when we would really just rather go back to our room and get under the covers and take a nap. The very act of coming back into the hall and sitting down on our cushion or going once again to our walking path and continuing is an act of faith. We're saying in that moment, I can do this. I can be with this. I can open to this. All of it. Even the boredom, or the restlessness, or the rage. In the metta practice, it can help to align ourselves with the faith or trust, or confidence in our own inherent goodness. Or, if that's too hard, simply in our own wish to be happy, which is a very wholesome wish. And then to allow whatever opening of heart we do experience, no matter how small it is, to nourish our faith. To actually do what's being suggested here, opening our hearts to ourselves and to others completely, unconditionally, is enormously challenging. So we need to recognize the small openings that come in our practice. I remember in my very first metta retreat some years ago, I was just having a very hard time connecting with the feeling at all. And at some point, I remembered a lake from my childhood that I loved a lot, where I learned to swim, which remains one of my favorite activities in life. And I started with that lake. I sent Meta to the lake. I remember reporting it in interviews. After the lake, I moved on to a dog. (laughs) And after the dog, myself, and then others. It's not what the Buddha taught, but it worked for me. It was an expression of faith, I think, to allow myself to rest my heart upon something that was easy for me, a place where I felt a sense of connection. Another expression of faith is to let it be okay when we don't feel anything, and to just keep returning to the phrases. Unconditional acceptance. That's what we're doing when we accept the truth of our experience, even if that truth is we're not connecting. I'd like to share a poem by David White about faith, and especially about those small moments of faith that we might not even recognize in ourselves. He said, I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow, night after night, faithful even in its fading from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving, and impossible sliver of light before that final darkness. But I have no faith myself. I do not give it the smallest entry. Let this, then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. Having confidence in our slender, barely open heart of loving kindness, allowing it to come into fullness in its own cycle. This is an opening to faith. Confidence is an important aspect of faith. We need to believe that we can actually do this. With a lack of confidence, we can't commit. And if not committed, we can't go deeper. But faith is not enough. It's the spark. But in order to really practice and develop loving-kindness, to bring it to life, we need the next of these five qualities, which is effort. Effort makes our faith into something real. It makes it practicable, practical, applicable in our lives. When the Buddha talked about effort, or the Pali word virya, he spoke about what are called the four great efforts, and these are to enhance and encourage wholesome or beautiful states that are already arisen in our experience, to not get entangled in unwholesome states that are already arisen in our experience, to encourage skillful or beautiful states that have not yet arisen and to avoid unskillful states (coughs) that have not yet arisen. And we're actually making these four great efforts as we practice loving kindness. When we recognize moments of unconditional acceptance and kindness, we're enhancing and encouraging the beautiful states that are already there. When we notice the far enemies or the opposites of the Brahmaviharas arising, and we don't get lost in them, but we come back to the practice, back to the phrases, we're not getting entangled in unwholesome states. Repeating the phrases over and over again, we're planting seeds, purifying our intention, and so we're encouraging beautiful states to arise. And as we keep our minds concentrated, one-pointed on the metaphrases phrases, or on the feeling, we're avoiding unskillful states that have not yet arisen. So we're making the four great efforts. It's important in our practice to find what's called right effort, And we've been talking about this along the way. It's a skill that we learn. It means keeping our energy in balance. And the way we learn this is by falling out of balance. We notice that we're too tight. We're straining. And we back off. We soften. We relax. We notice that we're spaced out, drifting. So we focus. We bring more sharpness to the mental image, or we really try to connect with the meaning of the phrases. We make more effort. One fall, when I was doing six weeks of metta practice, the biggest lesson I learned was about how to return to the phrases when I got lost, really how to be present with them, I can get a little driven at times in my practice and what I noticed on that retreat was I was moving along at a pretty fast clip <laughs> with the phrases, counting sets of phrases. <laughs> counting sets for each individual or groups you know, that I was sending to and I had this whole technique where I didn't even have to say the numbers, I would just make pressure on each one of my fingers. <laughs> It was elaborate, but (laughs) anyway, I was aware that this seemed a little off. (laughs) 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 And I was kind of embarrassed by it, but eventually I did report it in an interview. And my teacher told me, basically reminded me, that it was no more noble to do a hundred or more phrases in one sitting than it was to do 80 or 60 or whatever the number was. She reminded me that it was the quality with which I did the phrases and not the number, the amount of phrases. When I sat again with this in mind, it really changed my experience. It sounds so simple, but it was a big shift to just relax into it and to really work with The quality of the phrase rather than how much I could get through in one sitting. It felt like a moment of freedom when I would let go of distractions and just come back to the phrases, without judgment, without worry, (laughs) without counting, (laughs) without the tension of trying to get through the, the one I was on to get to the next. It made the feeling of metta more of a continuous flow throughout the day. This is the balancing of energy that we learn as we practice. And occasionally, if I was really spaced out, I'd count phrases just to sort of bring the energy up. So it's not that it's really wrong, it's, um, it could be used as a skillful means. We learn how to fine tune. One of the things that I've seen in my practice and in my life is that using energy can often help to create energy. So sometimes giving the mind more to do can bring the energy up if you're feeling sleepy or bored. And as Michelle was saying last night, there's a lot of room for creativity in this. It's okay to be playful, to experiment with it. So some of us Dress our meta subjects up in different costumes. <laughs> and some of us, myself, I would imagine my meta subject in different positions or postures for each phrase if I needed to bring the energy up. And I can still picture some of those images that I had from years ago with this one person, you know, sitting at their desk with their feet up on the desk, and sun coming in the window, shining <laughs> on them, just kick back, relaxing. I knew them in the context of a business, so that's why we <laughs> were in their office. So right effort is really just the willingness to come back to the phrases, to the image, to the felt sense of the person, or to the feeling of loving-kindness. And remember, we can't force the feeling. We apply our effort to the practice, not to the feeling. The feeling flowers in its own time. The next of these five spiritual powers that I'd like to talk about is concentration or samadhi. And that's the quality of stillness, collectedness, steadiness of mind. The mind settles and becomes quite focused. And as Stephen mentioned already, there's two types of samadhi, fixed and moving. And the Brahmavihara practice is a concentration practice, so we're developing the fixed concentration, staying on a single object, the metta feeling. We use the moving concentration with our mindfulness or insight practice where concentration arises with each moment of experience, with each arising object. We focus on whatever is actually present. And as Stephen explained a couple of nights ago, the concentrated mind is a great protection. The mind gets very steady, very one-pointed, very still. And the hindrances are suppressed. This reduces fear and confusion when we're not suffering from a hindrance attack. And it increases faith and confidence, which supports our continued practice. So concentration manifests as peace and stillness. The mind is protected. The Buddha said that the cause for concentration to arise is continuous wise attention toward the development of concentration, which means we just have to keep bringing the mind back in order to get concentrated. The analogy that I like that describes this is to think about training a puppy to stay. You put the puppy down and you say, stay, and then the puppy runs off immediately. And so you get it, you bring it back, you put it down, you say, stay, and it runs off. And we have to do it over and over and over. And the reason I like this idea, this analogy, is that we remember with the puppy that we have to also be kind as well as firm. If we beat the puppy, it's not going to learn to stay. It's going to run away. (laughs) So we can't do that with our minds either. We just bring it back with kindness, but with perseverance, firmness. Eventually, it becomes trained. So remember that all those times when you bring your mind back, it's exactly what you should be doing in order to train the mind. So often we think it, something's wrong because we're having to bring the mind back. But that is what we should be doing. There are different ways to support the development of concentration. And one of them is skillfulness with one's meditation object. So this is what we've been talking about in terms of having a clear mental image, or a clear felt sense, or phrases that really work for you, that you can connect with. Being skillful with those tools. Another way to support concentration is by uplifting the mind when it's discouraged. So if there's a way that you can bring in some brightness or energy or happiness when the mind becomes heavy and discouraged. For me, nature offers that kind of brightness and support. So to just go outdoors and let myself be uplifted by nature Sometimes just having a sense of humor about the whole process can help. You know, just seeing how the mind goes off and goes off and goes off. It's like smiling at that puppy when it runs away. Another way is to calm the over-enthusiastic mind. Which means that when happiness does arise, there might be some moments of bliss or just a lovely feeling. Sometimes we can get, I know I used to do this, overexcited by it and kind of just get so interested in that that I forget to practice. It was really tempting to just hang out in that pleasant state. And then eventually I would crash, it would change, and I'd become discouraged. So over time, I learned how to be with those states of great happiness with less attachment. I still enjoy them, but I try not to hold on to them. And finally, another way to support the development of concentration is to keep our energy balanced, continued balanced energy. And this means to just keep going with our practice, even at times when it doesn't feel like it requires quite as much effort as it did in the beginning. You know, it's tempting when we don't need to make such a great effort that we think we can just go on automatic pilot. And we can relax more and let it carry us, but we also need to keep practicing. Concentration is a great support in practice. When the mind becomes collected, it's so powerful. It's like the difference between a flashlight and a laser beam. The energy of the mind comes together, and our focus is quite strong. It's as though our entire being becomes integrated. And when we use this energy in the service of metta, it's transformative. The fourth spiritual power that I'd like to talk about is mindfulness. Sati in Pali, the observing power of the mind. It means seeing very clearly and directly just how things are. It's a non-conceptual, deeply penetrating awareness. Mindfulness doesn't judge our experience. It, it knows it directly. It has the quality of alertness, a sense of being very much in the present moment. It's mindfulness that helps to balance the other qualities, the other spiritual faculties of energy and concentration and faith and wisdom. Michelle spoke quite a bit last night about the ways we can use mindfulness to navigate the physical, mental, and emotional terrain that often comes with this process of purification. That happens when we're doing metta practice. I'd like to make a link between mindfulness and metta. This link begins for me with an understanding of mindfulness as synonymous with presence think about what it means to be fully present with our own experience or with another person. We're alert, attentive, interested, undistracted. It's a very active state, a state of wholehearted participation in our lives in the present moment. And it's a radical act, being fully present. So often we're distracted from being present by liking and disliking, or simply by being confused. But when mindfulness is strong, when we're actually fully present, fully connected with the truth of the moment, it's not really very different from a state of metta, because mindfulness also has that unconditioned quality. It doesn't play favorites. I'd like to share with you a story about the first time that I felt I understood what being in love meant. It was more than 20 years ago now, and I was hitchhiking (laughs) at dawn (laughs) from Truckee, California to Lake Tahoe which was where I lived at the time. I was totally alone out on the road in a very beautiful setting. This is in the Sierra Mountains in California, which are almost always snow-capped. So it was very pretty. And for some reason, my mind was really quiet. There was nobody on the road. (laughs) I was out there waiting for a ride. And I had a very quiet mind, probably because I'd been up all night. So I was tired. And I was just standing there and I wasn't thinking much but I was awake and present in that beautiful morning light and there was also a billboard across the highway from where I was standing and at some moment I just suddenly thought I'm in love and I thought where did that come from?" (laughs) And then I realized that it was just about being fully present in that moment, unconditionally open to my experience, to what was around me. And it was the billboard that tipped me off, (laughs) because I hate billboards. (laughs) (laughs) And I did even more back then. But in a way, the whole scene, the whole experience, was completely perfect in that moment. It was just me, and the (laughs) mountains, and the sunrise, and the billboard, and no cars. (laughs) And it was perfect. And there was this real sense of being in love. It really just had to do with presence being fully present with what I was perceiving without preconceptions. Looking back on that experience, I see it as a moment of unconditional love or openness or connection. Perhaps you've had a few of those moments here on this retreat. They happen sometimes as we do this practice. And other times it's dry or mechanical, or rote. But as my teachers told me over and over again, it doesn't matter what you're feeling. Just come back. Just come back to the phrases. Because what we're doing is setting the intention for that kind of unconditional openness or love. Another instance that happens for me in daily life when I've noticed the similarity between love and being fully present or mindful is in relationship with another person. Often when I feel most loved by another is when they're being very present with me. It's really nothing special. I see this in my relationship all the time that it's just small moments when my partner's paying very close attention to me that I feel most loved. It's really not special, but it's wonderful to have that kind of presence, that kind of unconditional acceptance. When we're able to be present, to be mindful in that way, the world is transformed. Seeing a tree or a chipmunk or drinking a cup of tea, it can be exquisite when we're really present. The poet Pablo Neruda had an amazing ability to be present with so many things. One of his books of poetry is called Odes to common things, in which he delights in the ordinary. There are odes to an onion, to scissors, to the table. They're really love poems to everyday objects. They're quite delightful, so I thought I'd share one with you. This one is called, Ode to Things. I have a crazy, crazy love of things. I like pliers and scissors. I love cups, rings, and bowls, not to speak, of course, of hats. I love all things, not just the grandest, also the infinitely small, thimbles, spurs, plates, and flower vases. Oh yes, the planet is sublime. It's full of pipes, weaving, hand-held through tobacco smoke, and keys and salt shakers. Everything, I mean, that is made by the hand of man. Every little thing. Shapely shoes and fabric and each new bloodless birth of gold. Eyeglasses, carpenter's nails, Brushes, clocks, compasses, coins, and the so-soft, softness of chairs. Mankind has built, oh, so many perfect things. Built them of wool and of wood, of glass and of rope. Remarkable tables, ships, and stairways. I love all things, not because they are passionate or sweet-smelling, but because, I don't know, because this ocean is yours and mine. These buttons and wheels and little forgotten treasures, fans upon whose feathers love has scattered its blossoms, glasses, knives, and scissors, all bear the trace of someone's fingers on their handle or surface. The trace of a distant hand lost in the depths of forgetfulness. I pause in houses, streets, and elevators, touching things, identifying objects that I secretly covet. This one because it rings, this one because it's as soft as the softness of a woman's hip, that one there for its deep-sea color, and that one for its velvet feel. Oh, irrevocable river of things, no one can say that I loved only fish. (laughs) 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 Or the plants of the jungle and the field, that I loved only those things that leap and climb, desire and survive. It's not true. Many things conspired to tell me the whole story. Not only did they touch me, or my hand touched them, They were so close that they were a part of my being. They were so alive with me that they lived half my life and will die half my death. I think maybe he was a greedy type. (laughs) (laughs) So I also wanted to touch on the three other brahma-viharas of karuna, mudita, and Upeka, or compassion, empathetic, joy, and equanimity, in terms of presence. How is karuna, or compassion, presence? In the compassion practice, the open heart turns toward pain. In just the same way that we practice being with another in their happiness, We practice being fully present with ourself or another when there is pain. Can we be mindful, aware, connected, in a difficult situation, rather than closing down or pulling away? It's so much about a willingness and ability to be present no matter what is happening. This doesn't mean acceptance in the sense of passivity. Compassion is not weak. It's strong. We're able to face what's difficult without fear. This empowers us. We're able to take action because we're not crippled by our fears or by denial. But we start where we are. It's a practice. How is mudita presence? Sympathetic joy or empathetic joy is the quality of rejoicing in the happiness of others. I remember the first time I understood how to do this practice. It was one of those insights that had a profound effect and is so simple in the retelling. What I realized with mudita Is that the key to experiencing empathetic joy is to shift my awareness from myself to another. It sounds simple, but it was so easy to forget. To be with that other person fully in their happiness and good fortune. When I remembered to do that, it was quite simple that I was happy too. I shared in that happiness. But it's easy to forget and to self-reference again. To think, oh, why don't I have that kind of good fortune or happiness in my life? To just go back to thinking about me again. When I notice that I'm doing that, that I'm comparing, thinking about myself, I try to remind myself to pay attention to the other person again, to be with them fully. It's really basic, but it's been quite effective for me when I remember to do it. And sometimes I can't. We do our best as we do these practices. Finally, how might we understand upeka or equanimity in terms of presence? Really, this quality of equanimity or a balanced heart and mind flows through all of the other Brahma-viharas because it's about being with our experience in a way that's non-reactive or spacious and calm. It's our ability to be with all of life's experience, the joys and the sorrows, unconditionally, with an open heart, It's to be fully alive, awake to the whole of life. And this movement is really wisdom, which is the last of these five spiritual powers. Wisdom is equanimity. We understand deeply that things are the way they are. We know the ups and downs of life, We understand that no matter what we wish for another person or ourselves, ultimately we can't control it. Seeing things as they are is wisdom, is equanimity. But as has already been said, this is not to be confused with indifference. A balanced heart and mind doesn't mean that we don't care. Actually, we can care quite deeply because we're able to be open and fully present with what's happening. We have more choice. We see that we don't have to react. We needn't be controlled by the unskillful states that might arise in our minds, this is wisdom. We're able to be more fully present in our lives and really more engaged. In our metta practice, as the barriers between I and other become more transparent, wisdom is also knowing that we're not separate this wisdom emerges. We begin to see the interconnection that we have with all of life. And we see that the power of metta is bigger than who we are or who we think we are. In a short poem by Rumi, he asks, I am so small I can barely be seen. How can this great love be inside me? And the answer that's given is look at your eyes. They are small, but they see enormous things. So, developing these qualities of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom enhances our metapractice and every moment that we say the phrases in the right spirit we are developing each one of these qualities let's sit for a moment